You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to help you plan that unbelievable travel experience. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator. Hey everyone, Ellie here, wishing you a happy Friday, and boy, more than a happy Friday, a historic Friday. So a funny thing happened between the time I recorded the original podcast and now, which is that Donald Trump has been indicted. Uh, it, it is as surreal as it sounds, but it is also quite real. And sometimes in this business, you will write a smart, timely column, and then something brand new will happen and blow it out of the water. So before we get to this week's column, I'm going to give you just some thoughts about what has gone down in the last few hours with the indictment of Donald Trump. This is, of course, historic. We've never had a president, a former president indicted ever for anything in the history of this country. Richard Nixon might have gotten indicted, but he was pardoned, of course, by Gerald Ford. Bill Clinton actually was closer to getting indicted than I ever realized, but I dug in. When he was leaving office, the special counsel, a guy named Bob Ray, who replaced Kenneth Starr, was ready to indict Bill Clinton, but Clinton agreed at the last moment to a deal where he gave up his law license and paid a fine and uh, preserved himself from being indicted. But here we are, Donald Trump has been indicted. We have not seen the indictment yet, but I'll talk to you about what that might be in a moment. Um, there are very likely more charges coming, by the way, and I talk about this in this week's column. I think it remains virtually certain that the DA down in Fulton County, Fonnie Willis, will charge Donald Trump for election interference. DOJ, I don't know. I, I think they're around 50-50, but we could soon have a situation where we have a person running for president, the front runner of one of the two major parties who is under multiple indictments. Uh, we've never had a confluence of politics and law quite like this. Now, how is this going to work? Okay, this case is charged in what we call New York State Supreme Court. We are in state courts here. The prosecutor is the Manhattan DA, Alvin Bragg, as I always say, a friend of mine and somebody who I was colleagues with at the Southern District of New York. But this is not a federal prosecution. These are not the feds. This is not DOJ. This is not SDNY. This is the Manhattan DA. Uh, little note, by the way, we're in what's called New York Supreme Court. That gets confusing uh, because in most places, the Supreme Court is the top. It's the top appellate court, the nine people in robes. Here, it's just the New York State Trial Court. Uh, reporting is Donald Trump will be arraigned on Tuesday, this coming Tuesday, April 4th. Um, there was some speculation of could he fight extradition? Could Ron DeSantis fight extradition? Doesn't look like that's going to happen. If it does, by the way, that's just political theater. Legally, he's got no leg to stand on. The Constitution's clear. Federal law is clear. One state cannot deny a, a defendant to another state. And it, it is bizarre, but Donald Trump is now a defendant. So Donald Trump will appear in court uh, there will be quite a scene down there. He will be arraigned, though, like any other uh, individual, like any other defendant. He will be advised of the charges against him. He will plead not guilty. 
The judge will make sure that he has a lawyer, which he will for sure. The judge will set bail. The judge will release Trump on his own recognizance, meaning you can go home, just come back whenever we ask. Um, and the indictment will be unsealed. We will finally get to see the indictment. Before we get to that, logistical questions. Will he be perp-walked? Will he be walked in handcuffs? No, don't count on that. There's all sorts of back tunnels and elevators. They're not going to do that. Um, he's supposed to be fingerprinted. Uh, and by the way, they don't do that with ink and roll anymore like the old days. Now they do it with, uh, you just put your hand on a, on a basically a computer screen. Um, he should have his mugshot taken, but under New York law, mugshots are not supposed to be public unless there's some specific law enforcement need. Now, could it leak? Maybe uh, that will be a powerful image. I don't know whether that will help or hurt Donald Trump. It could galvanize political support for or against. Um, the indictment... We've talked about this before. The indictment is the first step. There are many legal battles ahead. Trump's defense team is going to make motions to dismiss. We're going to have to go through discovery. Eventually, a trial. How long? Usually takes a year or more to get to trial, and we've got the complication of the 2024 election. And if there's a trial, then there will be a sentencing, and then there will be an appeal. This is, in some ways, a case like any other. Um, Let's talk a bit about the merits of the case. We've still not seen the indictment. It looks like it's going to relate to the payment of hush money uh, to Stormy Daniels and maybe to Karen McDougal as well. We're familiar, I think, with those fact patterns. The charges here under New York state law, it looks like some of the charges, and by the way, we know there are over 30 charges in the indictment. Don't necessarily take that to mean this indictment is strong or powerful. I mean, prosecutors often have the ability, depending on just how thinly you slice the conduct, to charge what sounds like a massive number of counts. Um, the feds usually tend to try to be more concise and, and boil things down into the fewest number of charges. State prosecutors like to blow it up and sort of separate it out. So it could be here that every little move, every little business entry, business records entry is its own count. If this is based on the hush money payments to Stormy Daniels, it looks like we will see probably several charges under New York state law for what's called falsification of business records, meaning these payments to Stormy Daniels and maybe to Karen McDougal were falsely logged as attorney's fees. That's a misdemeanor. Uh, that is a low-level crime. No one's going to prison for a misdemeanor. But it sets the table for a potentially more serious crime of felony, which is if you falsify business records in order to commit or conceal some other crime, some second crime, that becomes a class E felony. And the classes, by the way, are A is most serious all the way down through E, which is the least serious. The penalties there are four years. If you Google it, by the way, it'll say one to four years sometimes. That one year is not mandatory. A judge can and often does. I've talked to several uh, experienced practitioners in the state and based on my own experience, judges often sentenced to no prison time on a non-violent class E felony. But what could that other crime be here? Could be there's some tax angle, although I'm not completely understanding what that might be. Could be there's some other fraud angle, but the most likely looks like a campaign finance violation. The argument would be that these payments were really designed to protect Trump in the election, and they exceeded the election donation and expenditure limits. The problem is the election was a federal one for president, but we're talking about state law here, and it's not clear state law covers that. Uh, there will be other motions to dismiss. They'll argue selective prosecution. Trump was singled out for political reasons. They'll quote 
The DA, Alvin Bragg, thinks he said about Trump when he was running for office. They may argue statute of limitations, by the way, which is normally five years. This conduct happened more than five years ago. But prosecutors, I think, will be fine on that because there is law saying that the statute of limitations gets put on pause, told, as lawyers say, um, while a person's living continuously out of state, as Donald Trump has been. There was provision to toll the statute of limitations during COVID. Um, so I don't think prosecutors are going to have a problem on that. How strong is the evidence? We don't know, um, but let's let's go with what we do know here. Michael Cohen is likely going to be the star witness. There could be other witnesses, but the key, as with any cooperating witness, is corroboration. Is there something that backs Michael Cohen up? Michael Cohen has claimed, oh, I'm backed up by documents. I'm sure that he is to an extent. We've seen the checks that Donald Trump and the Trump org issued to reimburse Michael Cohen for the hush money payments. Some of them signed by Donald Trump. That's good evidence. That's important evidence. But the important thing to keep in mind here, the crime is not paying hush money. The crime is not knowing about hush money. The crime is the falsification of business records. How were those records logged within the Trump organization? You have to show, prosecutors have to show that Donald Trump knew about that, that Donald Trump told them to log the payments that way. One of the defenses here is going to be, no, it was actually Michael Cohen and Alan Weisselberg who did that. Michael Cohen's the one who invoiced it. And if you listen to that recording that Michael Cohen made of Donald Trump, lawyer recording his own client, by the way, uh, that is unusual and shady. Um, it sounds like Donald Trump is sort of saying to Michael Cohen, how are we going to do this? And Cohen says a couple different times, don't worry about it. Me and Alan Weisselberg are going to take care of it. We're going to handle the logistics. And so the defense is going to say, Donald Trump left this to Michael Cohen, the one who falsified documents, the one who invoiced it as legal fees was Michael Cohen. That'll be part of the defense. Um, look, Michael Cohen, there are arguments about his credibility. He, he will claim that he has been truthful ever since he turned a corner back when he was prosecuted. And largely most of the things, many of the things, maybe nearly all the things Michael Cohen has said since then have come true. Not all, though. You know, people like to say, oh, he's been completely accurate since then. No, he tried to cooperate with the Southern District of New York and they rejected it because they said he's not being fully forthcoming after he supposedly had his big turnaround, his big revelation. Um, but look, there, there are elements of Michael Cohen's testimony that are strongly corroborated and believable. And I think to an extent, Michael Cohen will cut a convincing and likable figure. I, I've said before, I'm friendly with Michael Cohen. I like him. Um, and I generally believe what he says now. That said, he's going to be attacked fairly on cross-examination because boy, is he open to attacks on his credibility. Let's run through it. He's a convicted perjurer. He is a convicted tax fraudster. He is a convicted financial fraudster. By the way, one of the talking points on Michael Cohen is, yeah, but he committed all those crimes for Donald Trump. Not true, folks. He did commit perjury in Congress. He lied to Congress to protect Donald Trump. Um, and he committed these campaign finance crimes, which he was convicted for. He pled guilty for, um, with and for Donald Trump, according to the Justice Department. But the financial fraud that he was convicted of, the tax fraud that he pled guilty to, that was for his own purposes. That was his own financial fraud. And by the way, Cohen is out there. He said it just the, last night on CNN, denying now that he actually committed those crimes, the financial and tax fraud crimes that he pled guilty to, that's not good for prosecutors because now it's going to look like this is a guy who cannot accept responsibility, who cannot accept reality. And by the way, if he actually did not commit those crimes, add one more 
piece of perjury to Michael Cohen's record because he went in front of a federal judge under oath and admitted that he did commit those crimes. So now he's got to say, what, I lied to that federal judge? Yet one more act of perjury, arguably. Um, Michael Cohen also hates is not a strong enough word despises Donald Trump with every fiber of his being. He's incapable of opening his mouth without going on a rant against Donald Trump. Now, people may say, well, that's that's justified. I would hate Donald Trump if I was in Michael Cohen's shoes. Maybe, maybe. Um, and it may be understandable to a jury, but the fact is it will color Michael Cohen as a witness. We talk about, are our witnesses biased? Do they have an ax to grind? And the best witnesses are the ones that don't, that don't really care, that maybe even like the defendant and are reluctant to testify. Uh, Michael Cohen hates Donald Trump. If I'm the defense lawyers, by the way, I'm having some paralegal go through every one of Michael Cohen's TV appearances and podcasts and just put together a list of the most outrageous, over-the-top things he has said about Donald Trump. And let me tell you, I told this anecdote in, I think, last week's podcast. I did Michael Cohen's podcast, and the things he was saying about Donald Trump, the words he was using were so bad that I, the only time I've ever done this, I, and you know how I talk, folks, said to Michael Cohen's producers and Michael Cohen, okay, folks, stop. We are cutting this or I'm leaving right now. He said words that I will not repeat and I will repeat almost anything. That's how much he hates Donald Trump. That's not going to help him as a witness. One more problem with Michael Cohen. He has said publicly and to the Federal Election Commission, which is punishable by perjury, none of this was criminal. He said to the FEC back then when he was Trump's guy, these payments had nothing to do with the election. Um, he will say now, I was just lying for Trump, but again, add it to the pile of lies. One more thing, Michael Cohen's never-ending publicity tour is horrible for prosecutors. I cannot believe they're allowing him to do this. Now, it's a little different scenario because they don't have charges on him. Normally, when you have charges on a cooperator as a prosecutor, you do have the ability to tell them, hey, no more speaking in public. Here, all they can do is beg, but the fact that Michael Cohen cannot stop himself from going out there in public and talking. His lawyer, Lanny Davis, doing the same thing is not helping prosecutors at all. Okay, so there are my thoughts. Uh, we'll give these to you this week in addition to, of course, the originally planned podcast, which still holds and I think still has some interesting points in it. We will be here for you throughout this process. This is going to be Really fascinating. Um, we're going to learn a lot as we go. We'll get new revelations every day. And the stakes here really just could not be higher. So thanks for listening, everyone. And here is your regularly scheduled podcast. Hey, everyone. Ellie here wishing you a very happy Friday. If you get a chance, check out my other podcast, Up Against the Mob, Season 2, The Springfield Crew. I promise you, I promise you, you start listening to this, you will get hooked. You will listen all the way through. We've been dropping episodes every Wednesday. We have the first five out. There are two more to come. So many people have come up to me and talked to me and sent notes about how much they're enjoying it. I'd love to hear all of that from you. In the meantime, send me any other thoughts, questions, or comments to letters at cafe.com. And now here's this week's podcast. When I teach criminal law to college undergraduates at Rutgers, I open the class by asking this question. How many different criminal justice systems are there in the United States? The most popular answer is two. Some students say federal and state, 
while others argue that the justice system splits people into groups based on race or wealth. Both are good guesses, but not quite right. The answer is 51. We have one federal system and then one more for each state. Yes, there are military courts and traffic courts and bankruptcy courts and the District of Columbia, but let's not overcomplicate it. And if the question was how many different prosecutor's offices we have in the United States, then the answer mushrooms to over 3,000. We have one unified federal prosecutorial system in the United States Department of Justice, the Attorney General, plus 93 U.S. attorneys and their staffs. Then we've got state-level AGs, though not every state gives its AG criminal enforcement powers, and virtually every county in the entire United States has its own prosecutor, variably called the district attorney, the county prosecutor, or confusingly, the state's attorney. This is all necessary background when we consider this vital question. Of all the Trump cases, why on earth would Manhattan DA Alvin Bragg's potential indictment over the record-keeping around hush money payments go first? We still don't know precisely whether and when Bragg will indict Trump, and it now appears that a final decision could be weeks away. But the Manhattan DA remains the most likely of all the prosecutors investigating Trump to pull the trigger first. At the risk of sounding nihilistic, the answer is that there is no answer. The three prosecutors' offices currently circling Trump, DOJ under Merrick Garland and Special Counsel Jack Smith, Fulton County DA Fonnie Willis and Bragg, are separate sovereign entities. My usual disclosure here, Bragg is a friend and former colleague at the Southern District of New York. There is no overarching prosecutorial entity binding together federal, state, and local prosecutors. They all operate on their own legal authority and their own timelines. If anything, the two DAs have even more independence than DOJ does. Garland and Smith are both political appointees who can be removed from office, and they must abide by a cumbersome pile of DOJ internal regulations and practices. Bragg and Willis, by contrast, are elected officials who report to nobody and cannot be removed by anybody other than the voters. They can do essentially whatever they want. These situations happen all the time among prosecutors. When I was with the SDNY, we'd often learn that some other office, often our colleagues across the river in Brooklyn at the Eastern District of New York, or perhaps state or local officials, were poking around the same targets as we were. Naturally, we'd reach out to our counterparts and talk it through. At times, these discussions would get heated and territorial. You'll be shocked to learn that prosecutors can have egos and tempers. We dramatically but aptly call these inter-office showdowns turf battles. Jets and sharks without the dancing and the switchblades, essentially. At times, it would get so intense between the SDNY and the EDNY that we'd need to hold a mini-trial, with officials at DOJ headquarters hearing both sides and ruling on who gets to take the case. During one infamous turf battle, an EDNY supervisor shrieked at my SDNY bosses, and no, I'm not going to do this in a shrieky voice, although you can bet we did at the Southern District of New York, you'll lose, you'll lose, you'll lose. It was shriekier than that. But often, these discussions can be calm and productive. We'd call these substantive discussions deconfliction, as opposed to the aforementioned turf battles. Words matter. The respective prosecutor's offices would work through important issues together. Are we looking at the same person? For the same conduct? Can we pull resources and evidence to work together to bring a stronger case? Should one office charge but not the other, or should both charge? Should one office go first, or should we roll out the charges in any particular sequence? 
Smith, Willis, and Bragg absolutely could have gotten together to deconflict, though there's no indication or public reporting that they've done so. There would be nothing remotely illegal, wrong, or improper about such inter-office communications. If anything, this would be common and smart prosecutorial practice. The ideal outcome would be a coordinated rollout in order of the seriousness of charges and the strength of the evidence. That would result in charges relating to January 6, potentially from Willis and DOJ leading off. Next up, we'd see DOJ with its case on classified documents at Mar-a-Lago. And then batting last, or perhaps not at all, we'd go with the Manhattan DA's hush money case. So why wouldn't Smith, Willis, and Bragg hop on a Zoom and hash it all out? Wouldn't that be the smart move? In this unique case, I believe these prosecutors actually have been wise to stay in their separate silos, assuming that that's what they've done. Imagine if Garland, Smith, Willis, and Bragg, in any combination, had gotten together to discuss their cases and decide how to roll them out most effectively. I'd know this was completely normal and fair practice, and you'd know that too because you're listening to this podcast. But imagine the howling that would come from Donald Trump's camp and his supporters. Collusion. A vast conspiracy, secret meetings, and a coordinated plot to bring me down. And surely, given Trump's recent vile and racist attacks on prosecutors, worse than that. I'm not saying prosecutors should or should not do anything to avoid a Trump tantrum, but I do believe that they ought to consider public perception, especially in a case of this magnitude. And if it would bolster the perception of legitimacy to have each prosecution proceed in its own lane without regard to or coordination with the others, then so be it. Public trust matters here. True, Trump's most loyal supporters will never be convinced of the legitimacy of any case against him. And the Manhattan DA's case in particular appears vulnerable to claims of prosecutorial overreach. But there's also a healthy middle class of the populace that will base its judgment on the merits. And the appearance is part of the merits here. By the way, I've noted repeatedly in this space the various costs of Garland's stultifying pace. Add another one to the mix now. Had Garland moved at anything resembling a reasonable clip, he already would have charged one or both DOJ cases on January 6th and Mar-a-Lago well before Bragg could move on the shakier hush money case. The same critique applies to Willis, by the way, who has been in office even longer than Garland and also has not yet charged anything. Yet somehow Willis seems to avoid all of this criticism. By whittling away more than two years, Garland and Willis have undermined their own eventual chances to convict, as we've discussed previously, and they've created a situation where prosecutors collectively are about to lead with their chin, the hush money case, the most vulnerable and exposed of all the potential charges. As we discussed last week, we seemingly are nearing a solemn moment in our history. The prosecutors encircling Trump seem to understand the intensity of the public spotlight. While Smith, Willis, and Bragg might have optimized their strategic chances by communicating and coordinating with one another, ultimately they made the right move by tending to their own cases and letting the chips fall where they may. Thanks for listening. Stay safe and stay informed, everybody. Hey, this is Scott Galloway, author, professor, entrepreneur, and most importantly, host of the Prop G podcast. We got a special series running on right now called The Future of Work, where I answer all your questions on, surprise, The Future of Work. 
questions including what are we missing when we work remotely or how do we handle work-life balance when a major opportunity comes knocking. From the provocative to the technical, we're offering insights you won't want to miss. So tune in to the future of work, a PropG Pod special sponsored by Canva. You can find it on the PropG Pod wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.